since the rediscovery of the Clotilda, and I don't like to say this discovery because it's always been there, but the rediscovery, we're in hopes that some redevelopment happens, some more dollars will come into the community, and that'll be a way of, you know, getting those 25 to 35 year olds who want to um, move into the community. Erin Hardnett. And I'm Amber Mitchell, and you're listening to Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast. In this season of Tilling the Soil, we will be exploring various conversations surrounding the environment. We speak to Joycelyn M. Davis, a descendant of the Clotilda and a current resident and community organizer in Africatown, Alabama, to discuss the community and environmental impact of heavy industry. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Joycelyn. I think that all of the audience and myself included would benefit a lot if you would just kind of introduce yourself, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, my name is Joycelyn Davis. I am a resident of the Africatown community, and I can't really tell the Africatown story in a short period of time, but it is the last known documented slave ship in U.S. history. Two of my ancestors were aboard the Clotilda, and they helped founded Africatown and a little small section in Africatown called Lewis's Quarters after they were denied that they could go back home because they actually thought that they could go back home. They saved up enough money, but again, they were denied. So after being denied, they decided to form a settlement in Mobile, Alabama, and they called it Africatown. My ancestor was able to purchase seven acres of land from his enslaver, Colonel Thomas Buford, and along with some of the captains on the Clotilda and some of those enslaved Africans that were already in Mobile. So they collectively saved their money and bought seven acres of land in 1870, which some of my family members still live in Lewis's quarter still today. And I am a part of Africatown Chess, which is an environmental group that stands for clean, healthy, educated, safe, and sustainable. I am the organizer of the Spirit of Our Ancestors Festival. It's a day set aside. It's a weekend actually set aside to celebrate our ancestors. I sit on the advisory board with Africatown Heritage Preservation Foundation. And right now I'm working on a litter campaign for the community. So there's a lot to be done in Africatown and we're we're a community of boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. And I was wondering if you might also expand a little bit on just a brief history of Africatown for those who might not be aware. For example, the arrival or the chartering of the Clotilda. So it actually, it goes back until the early 1800s in 1807, 1808. The importation of enslaved Africans was deemed illegal, but slavery was still legal, mm-hmm. but importation was deemed illegal. So 50 years later, there was this quote unquote bet, some may say a wager that Timothy Mayer, and I like to say this, and his business partners, because he mm-hmm. did not act alone. 
made a bet because he wanted to open up the slave trade again. But his story is just so broad because there were other attempts. He had other ships, but the Clotilda was um, built by Captain Foster, who was a friend of Timothy Mayer. So he made a bet that he can bring the enslaved Africans without being caught. But mind you, in 1858, there was an article in the Mobile Register stating that there was a um, brisk sale of enslaved Africans, that there was a war between tribes, and they were, quote-unquote, for sale, $60 a piece, gold-rated. So there was war between tribes. King Glele had villages raided. So this article was in the newspaper, and Timothy Mayer got word of it, hired Captain Foster. Captain Foster hired a crew. And before setting sail to Benin, the Clotilda was not a quote-unquote slave ship. It was bring, it was built to bring back goods, cotton, palm oil, and, and lumber. So he outfitted the Clotilda to bring in those enslaved Africans. The Clotilda was not a large uh, ship. So he hired a crew and, and, you know, I like the specifics of it. He hired a crew and, you know, what was on the ship? There was rum, there was bread, there was molasses, there was wheat. There were all these things that on, on the ship. And also he went over with $9,000 in gold for the exchange because there was an exchange because it was a bet. And, and what you need with a bet is money. So there was an exchange between King Glele and Captain Foster. So some people get it confused. Timothy Mayer did not take the voyage. Captain Foster took the voyage. So those he was supposed to come back with 125 enslaved Africans, but he only arrived with 110. Some say only 108 arrived. But between 108 and 10, these individuals survived their journey. And the most sad thing about it that the ages range from two to twenty-five. So these were babies. They were they were young people. So these individuals, they stuck together, the same leadership skills that they had in their homeland, they brought it here to the United States. And I'm a descendant of Olu Ale and Maggie Lewis. Um, Maggie is a name without a face. Charlie, I know what he looks like because of Emma Langdon Roach, who was actually the first to write about those enslaved Africans. She interviewed nine of them, and the book is called Historic Sketches of the South. And I am a descent, direct descendant, sixth generation of both of those enslaved Africans, and I uh, reside in Africatown. Thank you so much for that. And then I have one more question about um, the history of, of the town. Could you just share a bit about the name just like why is it called africatown well again they always long for home and they told their enslavers since we can't go back to africa we'll make our own africatown so that's a, the the name africatown because you know you have chinatown you have little italy and all these places but they they thought that they could not go they thought that they could go home but after being denied they said we'll form our own Africa town. Okay, thank you so much. 
So now I want to shift a bit more into the um, environmental questions. On the Dignity Justified on that website, uh, it mentioned that you had a memory about picking blackberries with your grandmother or for your grandmother. And she made, I think, a blackberry cobbler with it. And I was wondering if you might share this memory with us and also like other memories that you have relating to, you know, like you engaging with the the environment around you and like some of those, those memories that like shaped how you think about Africatown. Yeah. Living in Africatown and my grandmother was fourth generation. So she was not too far removed from her ancestors. And she was one that, you know, she lived off the land. Truly, she did. And we had a pear tree. We had pecans. And those blackberries were very plentiful on the railroad track, which is, you know, unbelievable when I see it today. I was like, I cannot believe I picked blackberries off of this railroad track. But they were the best blackberries ever. I spent every day with her. We lived within two miles of each other. I think somebody referred to it like living in a compound. It's like, you know, my grandmother lived here. My great grandmother lived there and my mom lived here. And we were right in a circle within each other. My grandmother would hunt and fish. Uh, My grandfather as well. And I didn't really eat like junk food or snacks or anything. She We'll make homemade ice cream and just everything, you know, from the land. My grandfather had a, a garden and, you know, of course, you know, the collard greens and cabbages and things like that. We ate a lot of fish and a lot of vegetables and a lot of nuts. Yeah, we um, just like their ancestors lived off the land. We lived off the land as well. And how did your elders teach you about the environment? Like, what is some of the knowledge that they imparted on you? Gosh, just remaining healthy, remaining, you know, just not eating a lot of junk food. My father, I know you say elders, well, he was an elder. I just didn't see my grandfather and my mother, anyone just eat a lot of junk. You know, it was just us living off the land. And then you also had someone you had the vegetable man that would come through the neighborhood where you would buy peaches from him. But you don't see that today. So that instilled in me to, you know, continue to eat healthy. I just enjoyed it. Um, and then also we had plums. It was just so plentiful that you could just go outside and pick off a tree or pick off a vine, you know, watermelons and just all those things really, they stuck with me. They stuck with me because, you know, everybody, not saying everyone, but we all remember just sitting at our elders' feet and just watching them, you know? Yes. Honestly, just hearing you reflect on on your elders really is kind of like bringing up my childhood memories too. <laughs> like we had a blackberry bush in okay. my backyard and my grandma came and made like blackberry dumplings. and yeah. Yeah. And there's just something, there's something to eating food that you directly engage with. And I I really do identify with what, what you're bringing up the way that connection with the environment oftentimes Mm -hmm. is through food and like an understanding of where your food comes from. And I'm, I really thank you for uh, sharing those memories. I'm wondering also how has the environment, the way that things look around Africatown changed since you were a child? Have it, has it changed at all? And if it has changed, how has it changed? That's kind of hard, not hard, but 
It's changed because I think about my age group and younger, and I've said this several times in interviews, that the goal is to leave Alabama. Like, you know, we talk about those times of picking blackberries and things like that. And it's like the new generation is like, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. That's too country. I want to, you know, I want to leave. I want to see the world. And once those people move out, you know, the population goes down. Everybody wants to move to Atlanta. You know, Atlanta was like a huge thing when I was growing up. And it's the thing of getting out of Alabama. There's not enough growth. There's not a, a lot of job job oppor- opportunities. So at one point, one of the major plants shut down. We have several plants in Africatown. But, I, you know, the newer generation, that's just not the job for them. Uh, that was like a job for their grandparents or their great grandparents. So they're looking into other things, which is fine. It's not the stereotype any, to me anymore of generations not going to college because I just feel like you several kids in my church. You know, I look at them. I was like, we need to love on them now because they are leaving. You know, I feel like, you know, once they graduate, go off to college, we won't see them again. And that's a, a hurting thing. So a lot of people have moved away. And those little mom and pop stores are not in the community anymore. It's just, it has declined. But since the rediscovery of the Clotilda, and I don't like to say this discovery because it's always been there, but the rediscovery, we're in hopes that some redevelopment happens, some more dollars will come into the community, and that would be a way of, you know, getting those 25 to 35-year-olds who want to um, move into the community. Yes, yes. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And you were saying since the rediscovery of the Clotilda, uh, can you speak on that a little bit, how that came about and the way that the community was involved with that that rediscovery? Because like you said, y'all have always known that it was there. I know that in some of the reports that I was reading about it, residents of Africatown were saying, like, we always knew that it was here. Like, these are stories that have been, you know, orally transmitted in our community. But like, then it was rediscovered. So if you want to speak about that, that'd be great. Right. So on Foster's, on his way back to the United States, the, the U.S. Marshals got word that he was on his way back. So and and it was a well thought out plan. You know, it, it's several layers to the story, but someone met Captain Foster with some lumber to destroy the Clotilda. Those young people were disembarked onto another ship where they had to go to Burns Plantation. And this is Burns Mayor. This is Timothy Mayor's brother, Burns. They were they had to go up to his plantation to hide out. So the Clotilda was burned. So you think about late 1800s, they did really didn't do a good job. And Clotilda was Captain Foster's prized possession. It was uh, fast. It was sleek. It was uh, only eight of its kind. So he really did not want to destroy the Clotilda. But the Clotilda was burned to, quote unquote, never to be rediscovered again. But there was an attempt to look for the Clotilda in the 90s. And I, um, if you saw the film Descendant, there was this guy, Jack Friend, his father was an exec at the at one of the plants, but he worked with one of the the mayor's um, family members that kind of told him, "Okay, you go look over here for." It. But they they gave him the wrong leads. So Ben Rains, 
looked at these notes. He looked at Captain Foster's notes. He read about Jack Friend. So someone actually, you know, told Ben like, hey, why don't you go look for the Clotilda? And he's not a native of Mobile. And he was like, okay, well, I'll go look for the Clotilda. So it was the no-tilda the first time. We were all in Africa town, and they said, well, it's not the Clotilda. And some people, some, not all, seemed to be upset. And this was just my, my feelings. I was like, it's not about the ship. It's about the people. So... You know, it was not the Clotilde at first. So they brought in search people from Mississippi State and all these different people. So later they made the announcement that it was indeed the Clotilde. And that has really put Africatown on the map again, again. So since that, you know, we've the film is out and hopefully that people will, will learn more about Africatown because it's not really about the Clotilde. But if Clotilda is the draw, once like we get people's attention about Clotilda, then we can tell them about, you know, the blight and um, the food deserts and the environmental issues. Because, you know, the mm-hmm. focus is on that ship, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, we have to remember why why it was built, what it was built for, what, you know, and all these things. It's not a ride on Disney World. It is it is a slave ship. But I understand that it is a last known documented slave ship in U.S. history. It's, when they told us that, I was like, wow, in U.S. history. So we are we are global. We are global. But it's more to that than uh, it's more to the Africatown story than the Clotilde ship. Yes, yes. With the rediscovery of the Clotilde, you were saying there's been a lot more kind of like interest nationally and internationally um, in Africatown. And one thing that I I kind of noted while I was doing my research for this interview was the way that it seems like a lot of like outside researchers who have like kind of like no connection to Africatown seem to be coming in and doing research. And I'm wondering if you might comment a bit about how it feels for outside researchers to come in to do this research. And as you said, like without having knowledge about like the environmental blight and like the economic state of of the area. It it kind of goes back to in the film where this elder was saying that our history has never been valued. And when we hear about the several books that are written and and films being made, we you know, we kind of look to ourselves as why didn't we do this or why, you know, because, you know, not saying it wasn't value, but I understand where she was coming from. And then, you know, I said that I was ashamed at one time because none of my friends were talking about it. Everybody talked about being like half Indian and half white. Nobody was really talking about that I knew of. And I had to, you know, be specific about that, that I knew of that, nobody talked about that when I was in school. So the outside can have its pros and cons. Now, I will say that Dr. Natalie Robertson, Dr. Sylvia Ann Duell have written fantastic books. I will say that their research is is very good. I call those two my textbooks. Uh, Nick Tabor. Some people grilled him when he first came to Africatown saying that he was he wanted to write a book. So he kind of had to prove himself. So his book actually um, touches on the environmental issues. So it's kind of, I think they call it a catch-22. I mean, there he is an outsider, 
but he brought light to the environmental issues. So this is kind of a, a charge on us. How do we teach our kids to be filmmakers? How do we teach our kids to be writers? You know, how do we teach our children to um, value these stories to, you know, to show them like you can be this person, you can tell this story, you know, how better it can come from us, from you, you know, these, these, uh, our young people. So it's, you know, it's two sided how I feel about the outside researchers, because um, I didn't have all of this, all of these books. Now, historic sketches of the South was always there. And we had Alabama history. It did speak about the Clotilda because I know it was mentioned that it was never in history books, but we had Alabama history and it was only two pages. But I remember seeing it because we had Alabama history in fourth and ninth grade. And I remember seeing Cudger Lewis's face in the in the book. And I was like, oh, wow, this is real. Like we are really, you know, um, the, the Africa town story is really, you know, real. It's in the it's in my history book. So um, I think it's kind of two-sided about the outside researchers, but we have put their feet to the fire of, of making sure that their work is accurate. Yeah. How do you think researchers can best support Africatown? Um, you're saying that there are some works that you do think are very good. Um, and obviously, I think that people will, will continue to have an interest in Africatown. So how can researchers best support the town best like not have like this kind of extractive relationship with the community i think my uh, first um thing comes to mind is our school and it's a historic school that is 100 percent african-american students there if there could be some type of seminar or something or an essay contest or something that can help these kids become writers that will help um, they can come to our, I call it the Hope Center. It's the Rival Hope Center. And they can come to the um, Hope Center and um, encourage our kids to write, you know, because everybody has a story. So I just think that they should start in our schools. And we have three feeder schools. We have an elementary, middle, and high school in the uh, Africatown area. So I think that um, the charge for the researchers would be to reach out to our schools. Yes, to reach out to the schools and to, as you were saying, enable young people to tell their own stories instead of have it them told by outsiders, right? Right. Or putting birds in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so you've mentioned this a few times now, the plants in Africatown. Initially, you were saying that one of the plants closed down. So like, there were fewer jobs. So people started to move away. And you were also saying that, you know, plants... And like the railroad tracks, for example, are kind of a source of environmental harm to the community. And I'm wondering now if we can turn a bit more towards that. And can you tell us a bit about the, the plants and the ways that those plants have impacted the health of community members? Well, my grandfather came from Decatur, Mississippi, he and his brothers for jobs. And International Paper Company was the buzz around the South. And he moved to Alabama from Mississippi and met my grandmother and started working at International Paper Company. And this was in the 40s, in the 1940s. And it was, uh, my air quotes, was a, a, a good job. 
he was able to send um, two of my aunts to college. My uncle went to the military. My mom went to cosmetology school. My aunt, she went to community college or to business school. So they all were able to do things. He was able to buy land, a boat, a truck, a nice car. My grandmother didn't work, right? So he had a good job. But the, the stench of that good job, you can smell it all through the community. It was one awful smell. And International Paper Company was near my middle school, which it was a high school when my mom was there, then it turned into a middle school. And again, it had the most awful smell and the, they call it soot or flurries. It, it, it looked like snow. It would just fall over into the neighborhood. You hear people talk about that it would change the color in your clothing because some people back wow. during that time hang their clothes on the line. Mm-hmm. And me not knowing, you know, how we just said in the South, we're not knowing any better. Like we would go and uh, pick up my grandfather because he could walk to work. And that's the thing about International Paper Company. It was like it was there. People could walk to work, you know, if you live. It wasn't far for a lot of these individuals working there. Mm-hmm. But before leaving the job, you had to rinse your car off. And I thought it was the coolest thing to go to this thing and y- your car would rinse out. But it was rinsing out the chemicals, right? Because these chemicals wow. would take the paint off your car. The, yeah, the chemicals were so powerful that it would take the paint off your car. And people so, were like walking around like coming into contact with their, with these chemicals, like on their bodies. Yeah. 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 You were. And that's actually in Nick Tabor's book, Africa town and the community that it created. So those were the things, but you know, you're still thinking, Oh, it was a, a good job. And not until later, I think my friend, I would say, you don't know what you don't know. So I talked to a friend about this, the smell and he said, well, you know what people used to say? Because I'm like, I was a young kid during this time. He said, you, people used to say that that was the smell of money. When you would ride through Africatown, that was the smell of money. That was the smell of um, prosperity. But that was for the tycoons of, the <laughs> of that business. The EPA, they had to shut down, I think, in 2000 that it shut down, the plant shut down. As a result of the EPA or for other reasons? Well, you know, that, you know, some may say the EPA, some may say other reasons that the plant wanted to downsize, but I I, I really do believe it was due to the EPA. But Pastor Williams, and it may have been before Pastor Williams, but I know for sure Pastor Williams, it was some years later that he noticed that he was having a lot of funerals. Just like in a film, he was saying, you just don't have funerals like that back to back. And he was like, you know, there's just something not right here. So had a survey done and had people in the community to fill out this survey to see like who in your family had cancer, uh, any type of um, health issues, bronchitis, uh, you know, all those type of things. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of hard. So I want to make sure I say the right thing. But I know Stewart and Stewart was the uh, law firm that went at, went after International Paper Company. So when they came to test the soil, they say that there was nothing different in the soil than any other neighborhood. Okay. So international settled, gosh, it was, it wasn't very much. It wasn't very much. Cause I think, and, and the family says that some people got at least that settlement was like $200. Some people got $200. So 
So they say they can't find anything different in any other in the soil and it because after so many years, but we know that that it did cause some type of effect in the community. So that plant is no longer. And what we do now with the environmental groups, we want to make sure that no harmful plants can come into Africatown now because you have me, Jack, and you have Chess. And we stay on top of that because you have this asphalt company that was in uh, Africatown. And we want to make sure that they're in compliance that, you know, and we're looking to put air monitors in the community. We're working with the Alabama uh, Department of Transportation because of the trucks that are coming in and out because there's a highway that's smack dab in the middle of the community with several trucks. I mean, I can stand on my front porch and see trucks all around. Instead of those plants, we have a lot of trucks now. There are a lot of trucks and we still have the mm-hmm. train. We still have the train and I don't know what's coming, what's in, you know, on those trains that are coming back and forth. And I told someone, I was like, even as a kid, seeing those, seeing a train, we would just wave to the conductor, not realizing what could be on this train. What would happen if it derails or what if anything would blow up on this train? So we have to be mindful of all of those things. And that's environmental justice. That's what we're doing in the community, just making sure that um, these people are in compliance and that they're good neighbors. Mm. Okay. Wow. And I, I have a follow-up question about the the paper factory, international paper. You were saying that when your grandfather moved to Alabama, there was like this smell. Was that smell still still um coming from the factory up until it closed or or had like it like was it smelling less bad? It was always bad. It was always bad. I don't remember a day when it wasn't bad. And I have a friend that lives miles away from the community. She was like, oh, we could smell that smell from our neighborhood. But that smell, with that, that, you know, me as a kid thinking it was just in our area. But other people said they could smell that smell. They knew <laughs> that, you know, it's like when someone asked, well, what does that smell? Oh, that's over in Africa town. Some people call it Plateau. Oh, that's over in Plateau. So, yeah, that, that smell traveled. It traveled. And it <laughs> stayed there. Mm-hmm, it <laughs> stayed there. They shut down. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. So now that it's shut down, you know, it's the air quality smells better now or? It's a little better. It's better. But, you know, you still have these trucks coming in and out. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so um, Ramsey Sprague and um, Joe Womack. Ramsey is the president of the Mobile Environment and Justice Act Coalition. And we have um, Major Joe Womack, who is our um, lead with chess and we're working on getting um air monitors in um africa town right and so like in the meantime like what are some other efforts that y'all are making to hold these companies these corporations accountable for their impact on the community that's a great question that is a great question i can say that and i i hope i'm answering this correctly i have met with some of them and i'm working on a litter campaign Okay, so if, you know, one asked, two asked, well, Joycelyn, what can we do? Okay, I was like, okay, you can. And I always refer people to the school. If you want to do something, go to our schools first and see what the principal needs there. And I told him, I said, litter is a huge problem in the community. How can you help with that? So one has hired two people in, in my neighborhood to help pick up litter. The other one has uh, connected with a group 
It's called Ransom Ministry. It's a homeless group where they go there um, to help themselves get rehabilitated. They So they help with litter. So we're setting up a calendar with all of the industries in, in the community where they can pick a month of when they can help with this litter campaign. So it's I call it my efforts of to keep Africatown clean. So the next step would be how can they employ some of the residents in the community? I haven't started it yet, but I would like to see how we can get some of um, our people employed in some of these places, because I'm not sure how many people in the Africatown community work in these various companies that are surrounding the area. But we just, you know, keeping them in compliance. Major Joe Womack and Ramsey, they making sure everybody's up to code. But we just want them to be good neighbors. We want to see their face, right? We want them to get to know everyone in the community. And, you know, we don't want them to just be someone who just drives to work and don't know the community, right? So uh, we're just going to hold their their feet to that. Right, right. And you also mentioned that Africatown has the issue of like being a food desert, how, how are y'all combating that particular issue? So I will say this, and this is, I work in a school system. So they have this, they give out boxes of food every second and fourth Tuesday of the month. So I, I finally got a chance to volunteer this past Tuesday. So this is Pastor Williams. And I like to call him our neighborhood celebrity. His name is Cleon Jones. He caught the last winning out. I hope I'm saying this right. In 1969 with the New York Mets. And he's, I think he's 80 something, but he gets around like he's between 30 and 40. He is one of those cars they don't make anymore. So every second and fourth Tuesday out of the month, the community is able to get fresh fruit and vegetables. And that's one way of helping people get decent food but as far as the food desert is concerned you know if you in in mobile you have to have a car i feel like you have to have a car you're gonna drive a couple miles to a grocery store yeah definitely you're gonna drive and you know some people may not have the luxury like my mom has a luxury of me my sister and my brother whatever store she decides she wants to go to all she has to do is just ask one of us to go so I mean, we, I know I do travel a distance to go to certain grocery stores that I like. There is one in the community that's within two or three miles of the community. Now, some may not want to go to that one. You know, it's not one of the best, but, you know, some people don't have other choice. But with the food bank, I think that it is a great thing. I mean, there were fresh cabbages, fresh corn, potatoes, and everything this past week that the residents were able to get. So that's one great thing. And we're in the hopes of getting a, a building because right now we're uh, right now they are doing it at the hope center. So we're hopeful that uh, they will have a, a food bank, a actual building soon. Wow. That's amazing. And I, I hope that that building is able to be acquired very soon um, for the residents of Africatown. And So I have another question kind of in this vein of environmental racism, you know, systemic racism, like given that Africatown is a bit like now since the rediscovery of the Clotilda, how it, it has gained a bit more notoriety nationally and internationally. 
what is some advice that you might give to other, um, you know, black towns that are experiencing similar forms of environmental racism that don't have the same kind of name recognition of Africa town? Like, how might they be able to combat, you know, some of the impacts of external corporations causing them harm? Oh, wow. Wow. They can reach out to Chess. Um, me, Jack, Mobile Environmental Justice Act Coalition, the Deep South for Environmental Justice, Catherine Flowers uh, in Lowndes County. And I, I, I say that because with my experience in this, my journey in this, and we just left Atlanta for an EJ conference, there are so many people fighting for environmental justice. I have never seen this before. I was like, Wow. So as Joe Womack always tell us to start at a, start at grassroots, you know, go to these establishments and, and find out, you know, if they're in compliance. And if you if you smell something that's just not right, contact a, a lawyer, find your em- environmental justice lawyer. There are so many. I would reach out to envir- um, Deep South Environmental Justice, Dr. Beverly Wright, Dr. Bullard. Also, I will reach out to the HBCUs because you have a huge following there. Um, Dr. Pageant at um, Tennessee State. There's just so many people. Well, when you talk about environmental racism, I will say this. We have to show our kids outside of their community because I say this. When I was growing up, I thought everybody lived near a plant. I didn't go outside my neighborhood very often. My great-grandmother, and if you watch the film Descendant, she lived behind a lumber company. We had to actually go through the lumber company to get to her house because they encroached on on that area. So I didn't know any different, right? Because I didn't go outside the community. We didn't really have to go outside the community at that time for anything because we had the grocery stores. We We lived out the land. So, you know, there was not a lot of McDonald's or, you know, it was like special occasions if we went out to uh, a restaurant. So I think this new I know that this new generation of EJ <laughs> activists, they're ready. They are they are ready and willing to fight because of what happened to their parents and grandparents that they will stand up. But I would encourage them to reach out to HBCUs and to the environmental, um, the deep South for environmental justice. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just to clarify to the audience, what we mean when we say environmental racism is just any kind of disproportionate impact of environmental hazards, such as pollution, odors, garbage dumps, toxic waste, and other such impacts that impact the quality of life and the health of, of people living in a particular area. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you again for sharing all of those resources with our audience. For your, for your closing thoughts, what is the main takeaway that you want our audience to have about Africa Town? So it is a story of resilience, courage, and pride. And that legacy is still in the community today. Although it's a few of us, we <laughs> we have so many meetings, so many strategic meetings about what we want and how we want it. So the takeaway is that this community is still here, is still standing. 
that you still have people in the community that care and that want to see more. They want to see redevelopment. We want to see those pecan trees back. We want to see those blackberries and those pears that um, we care about each other. We love each other. We may disagree because nothing is perfect, but we have that one common goal and that's to revitalize the community. So we all still have, and, and like my event is called the spirit of our ancestors. We still have the spirit of our ancestors to keep forward. That community is still there. It, it could have been, it could have been quote unquote washed away or, or, you know, not there anymore, but we're still standing. And with the rediscovery, that's going to uh, shed light on our needs. Um, not our wants, but what our, our needs are. And um, if anyone wants to uh, reach out to the Clotilda Descendants Association, we have a website. It's www.theclotildastory.com. Wow, you like preempted my next question, which was <laughs> how can the audience help to support Africatown? So visiting the website, going to the festival, is there anything, any other kind of direct action that the audience members can take to help to support Africatown? If anyone wants to support Africatown, there's another website. It's www.descendantfilm.com. And when you go to descendantfilm.com, it's going to show you all of the organizations that are in Africatown. Me, Jack, Chess, the Africatown Heritage Preservation Foundation. So you will have it in the Africatown Redevelopment Corporation. And sometimes people joke about how many different organizations we have, but they all serve a purpose. So the ARC is the Redevelopment Corporation. The ACDC that uh, Cleon Jones is the uh, Africatown Community Development Corporation. The ARC is going to help build homes. You have the foundation that will be the umbrella to the organization. You have the descendants and you have the two environmental groups as Mejack and Chess. Okay. Thank you so much. I, I, I encourage everyone to check out the film Descendant and go to our web. Once you go to our website, click on resources and you'll see all the books that are written on Africatown. I don't like to refer anyone to any special book, but they're all the books that are written and, and you can make your own choice of which one you would like to read. And they're all good. Well, thank you so much, Joycelyn, for your time. I really do appreciate it. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. Likewise. Yes. Thank you so much, Joycelyn, for taking time out to be a part of Tilling the Soil Season 2. Thank you for tuning in to Tilling the Soil. For more information on the podcast or Whitney Plantation, go to WhitneyPlantation.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. All the handles can be found in the description. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.